Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. As always, I'm your decoder, Simon. Welcome, welcome. This one written by Emma who is the Somerton man. Let's find out, shall we? The format of the show. I've never read this before. We're going to find out together. Was the Somerton man, was he like, in? A, was he one of these bog bodies or something like that? I have no idea. I've, I'm, I have a feeling I've covered it before, like on one of my other channels. But let's jump in, shall we? People are fascinated by mummies and the stories behind them. Think about King Tutankhamun and the ongoing research into what he looked like and how he lived. Orozzi the Iceman, a man who lived around 3105 BC and whose mummified remains were found in the Alps on the 19th of September 1991. Yeah, his body was like super well preserved and stuff, right? They were like, they looked at his stomach contents and were like, oh, his last meal was this. And that was 5,000 years ago! It's amazing! There are the mummies of, oh my god, Lulalalasio. Three Incan children who'd probably been human sacrifices, whose mummified remains were found in a sealed chamber on top of a volcano on the Argentina-Chile border. And then we have the Isdor woman and the Somerton man, who passed away in 1970 and 1948 respectively, and ironically, we might know more about the aforementioned mummies than we do about the Isdor woman and the Somerton man. But one of these mysteries has been solved, and based on the title of today's episode, it shouldn't be a mystery as to which one it is. Who was, oh, okay, I guess we're actually going to find out. I mean, honestly, like with YouTube click, maybe, like, who was the Summerton Man finally solved? And it'd be like, nah, it wasn't solved. Because <laughs> that's how YouTube works. You got to get those clicks. The Summerton Man. At 6.30 a.m. on the morning of the 1st of December 1948, two jockeys named Horry Patching and Neil Day were exercising their horses on Somerton Park Beach in the southern suburbs of Adelaide, South Australia, when they saw a man asleep on the beach. He lay with his head and shoulders against the seawall, his legs pointed toward the ocean, and he looked dead to the world. Being good, decent human beings, they went over to see if he was okay or just had one too many the previous night. But even when the two huge horses loomed over him, the man didn't move. <laughs> it could still be like, he could still just be passed out drunk. <laughs> the two horses, no, no idea, just super drunk. Horry jumped off the horse, grabbed the guy's leg, and pulled it. But when that didn't wake him up, they realized that the man was dead. A jeweler named John Lyons was on his way to work when he saw a small crowd had gathered on the beach. He went over to see what was happening, and when he was told that the man was dead, John hurried to the nearest payphone and called the police. <laughs> Wait, a whole crowd had gathered, but no one's been like, should we call the cops or should we just have a good long stare at his body? People are weird. Detective Strangway and Constable Moss from the Brighton Police Department arrived on the scene, and they determined that the man didn't have anything to identify him. He was clean-shaven, blonde, was wearing a grey and brown striped coat, brown trousers, a brown pullover, a white shirt, and a red, white, and blue striped tie. An unlit cigarette lay on his collar, almost as if he'd fallen asleep with it still in his mouth. His clothes were dry, and there was nothing to indicate that it had washed up on shore. Apart from the footprints of the horses and the gathered crowd, there weren't any other footprints next to the body which would indicate that someone had left it there. Well, he obviously got there somehow, and it is a beach. It's not that unusual that there are no footprints leading up to someone because, like, I don't know, the water comes in, the wind blows it around. There's not always footprints. 
And even if the beach is like, you know, like wavy sand, you know, where it's not just perfectly flat, would you even know that someone has stood there? John Lyons told the police officers that he'd seen the man the previous evening. John and his wife had been walking along the beach at around 7 p.m. when they noticed the man lying against the sea wall. He'd lifted an arm like he was trying to lift a cigarette to his mouth, and John had gotten the impression that the man was drunk. The news, a very creatively named Adelaide newspaper, reported that evening that a body had been discovered, and another couple came forward confirming John's story and adding that they'd also thought the man was a drunk who'd passed out on the beach. The body was taken to the Royal Adelaide Hospital, where Dr. John Barclay Bennett performed the autopsy. The man's clothing was removed and his pockets were searched. Dr. Bennett found an unused train ticket from Somerton to Henley Beach in the north side of Adelaide, as well as a used bus ticket for the Adelaide to Somerton bus, two hair combs, some chewing gum, a pack of cigarettes, and half a box of matches. Dr. Bennett also noted that he didn't have a hat with him when he was searched, which was unusual since hats were a standard part of a man's outfit at the time. As I'm writing this, I also realize the report doesn't mention a wallet or any money, although well, none of those reports I've read have pointed it out. <laughs> it's like, what's the the, the, the the dude called? Dr. Bennett? He's like, no, 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 there was definitely no wallet stuffed with cash. Definitely nothing like that on his person. Definitely I didn't take that. Just a joke. The labels on his clothing had been removed. His finger and toenails were cared for and had been unevenly trimmed with a pair of scissors. Yellow stains on his fingers indicated that he was a heavy smoker. His hands were soft, indicating that he didn't do manual labor and he was missing all of his molars. He also had broad shoulders and was strongly built, and later a taxidermist named Paul Lawson would note that the Somerton man calves were high and defined, suggesting that he had been in the habit of wearing high heels and pointed shoes. Okay, <laughs> it's unusual. Wait, I guess there are, like, didn't horse riders in the past used to wear high heels? And, I mean, men can wear high heels if they want to. It's just definitely unusual, definitely even more unusual back in the, wait, was this the 50s or 70s? Uh, 40s. Sorry. Lawson's opinion was based solely on his habit of studying the legs of women fairly critically, leading him to conclude that women who habitually wore flat shoes had inferior calf muscles. And sure, I get that some men appreciate a great pair of legs, but that's still creepy, dude. <laughs> yeah, it is. He's like, what is a, I'm a deep study of women's legs. <laughs> Dr. Bennett found that the man was in good physical shape, but his body was cold and damp after lying on the beach all night. He had most likely passed away from heart failure at around 2am on the morning of the 1st of December, but Dr. Bennett told the police officers that he suspected that the man had been poisoned since blood had pooled in the man's stomach. In the autopsy, Dr. Bennett explained that the stomach was red and congested, that small blood vessels in the brain were swollen and congested. His liver globules had been destroyed. What are liver globules? <laughs> Sounds ominous. And the liver and spleen were swollen. Yet when the blood was tested for known poisons, it came back negative. The unknown man's fingerprints were taken so that copies of them could be sent to every police department in Australia and New Zealand for identification, and descriptions of him were published in various newspapers explaining that he was estimated to be about 14 years old, about 1.8 meters tall, had hazel brown eyes, blonde graying hair, and had been wearing a clean American-made suit when he passed away. According to an article published in The Advertiser on the 4th of December, over 20 people had come to identify the Somerton Beach body, including a woman from Blackwood whose husband had been missing for more than a week, but no one was able to positively identify him, and by the 10th of December 1948, the decision was made to embalm the body and put it on ice until he could be identified. Can't they just take a photo of him? It's the 1940s. You got cameras and sh just take some really good photos and use those in the future, and then, you know, bury him or burn him or whatever you want to do. Detectives Dave Bartlett, Lionel Lean, and Len Brown might have hoped they'd find some answers when they opened the suitcase, but instead they just got more questions. All they found were a dressing gown, a pair of slippers, 
underwear, pajamas, a shaving kit, and a pair of dirty trousers with sand on them, which was really inconsiderate of the summer to man because who doesn't travel with their full medical history, their birth certificate, their banking details, neatly in a plastic sleeve on top of their clothing in their suitcase? No, agreed. But I also do travel with a little neat plastic bag, which has like my travel tickets in it, my passport in it, some emergency money in it. You know, it's not unreasonable to have like some form of useful ID. The items of interest they found were an electrician screwdriver, which means that it had been insulated against electric shock, a sharpened knife, a pair of scissors, a sheath to keep them in, and a stenciling brush. The police also found waxed orange thread in the suitcase and explained that at some point the Summerton man had fixed a hole in his trouser pocket using that same orange thread, enabling the police to positively link him to the suitcase. They also found, yeah, also it was found by him, wasn't it? <laughs> it's like, it's suitcase. Well, we're not sure until we've tied up that thread because there's so many other bodies on the beach. <laughs> they also found a tie, a laundry bag, a singlet, aka a vest, <laughs> aka a wife beater, that had been labeled with the name T. Keen in the suitcase. So, was Summerton Man's name T. Keen? Well, no. The police couldn't find any records of a missing man named T. Keen and theorized that it was possible that the Summerton man had bought the clothes secondhand since brand new clothes were still hard to come by just three years after World War II had ended. Which meant that the police had once again run out of leads. That's weird, like, in the past. It's like, oh no, people just, yeah, there just weren't that many clothes. And now it's like, I, I don't think I've ever bought used clothes. Like, I mean, I, I think I have, but it's been since I was a kid. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, people go vintage shopping all the time, not trying to knock that. It's just like, we live in a world of crazy abundance and waste. This meant that the police were out of leads. An inquest into his death had been opened, but it was put on hold until more evidence could be found, and the decision was made to finally put the Summerton Man to rest. In June 1949, Paul Lawson made a plaster cast of the body, and the Summerton Man was buried on the 4th of June at the West Terrace Cemetery. His headstone read, Here lies the unknown man who was found at Summerton Beach, 1st of December 1948. The plaster cast, autopsy photos of the Summerton Man's face, and some information on him was put on display in the Adelaide Museum in the hope that somebody would recognize him, but the police still did have one more lead to follow. In or around May 1949, the Summerton man's clothes had been re-examined, and someone found a piece of rolled-up paper inside a fob pocket, aka a smaller separate pocket in the trouser where fob watches could be kept safe from damage inflicted by loose coins and scratchy keys. I feel like we need to have those for phones. I need, like, a phone pocket. I try and generally keep my phone, like, in a separate pocket from other stuff, but at some point, you know, you'll be like, oh, no, I left my keys in there, and now there's a scratch on the screen, and that's going to annoy the shit out of me until I get a new phone. You know what I mean? We need that. Also, this the, the the guy, the mortician, not the mortician, the autopsy dude, the dude, the doctor who does autopsies. He didn't do a very good job of searching the pockets, did he? If it turns out there was actually stuff in his pockets, two words had been printed on this carefully torn piece of paper. The words "Tamam should." The detectives took the piece of paper to the public library, where li librarians identified it as belonging to the last page of a book called Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Specifically, the 1941 edition of Edward Fitzgerald's translation, which had been published by Whitcomb and Tombs, a bookseller and printer company based in Christchurch, New Zealand. Librarians are amazing. They're like the internet back in the day. Be like, I wonder what this Tamar should means. Nowadays, you just Google it and be like, boom, done. In the past, you'd just be like, hey, librarian, you heard of this? It was like, ah, yes. The final page of this one obscure novel. The New Zealand translation, yes. <laughs> Genius. The entirety of the Rabaiyat is a love poem that explains that uh, you should live life to the fullest and have no regrets when it's your time to die. The words Tamun should means the end, and apparently the Rabaiyat had been quite popular at the time. The newspapers reported on the finds, and a man identified only as Robert as Ronald Francis 
sorry, came forward with a copy of the Rubaiyat, explaining that someone had tossed it in the back of his car in November 1948. The torn piece of paper matched a hole that had been torn underneath the last verse in Francis's copy, but stranger still, a note had been written in pencil on the last page of the book, which the police would later theorize was a coded message. Alongside, I feel like we're playing an escape game. <laughs> There's so many, like, codes and hidden pockets, and, like, you're matching it up with a book. It feels like we're in an escape game. Alongside the note was the telephone number, and when the police called it, a 27-year-old woman referred to as Jestin answered the phone. When the police asked if she was familiar with the Rabayat of Omar Kayum, she told the police that she did used to have a copy of the Rabayat. She'd been an army nurse, and back in 1945, she'd been caring for an Australian army lieutenant named Alf Boxall. It was implied that the two of them had a relationship, and she gave him her copy of the Rabayat. She hadn't seen him since. She lived just five minutes' walk from Summerton Park Beach and had heard of the body discovered there, but hadn't thought that it had anything to do with her. However, she did tell the police that an unknown man had come to her house earlier that day. He'd been asking neighbors if a nurse lived there, and they confirmed that she did. Her neighbors told him that Justin wasn't home, and the man left. In July 1949, Justin was asked to go and see the body at the Adelaide Museum, and Detective Lionel Lean asked her if she recognized him. She said she didn't. The police managed to find the army lieutenant she'd cared for and found that not only was he still alive, he still had his copy of the Rabiat and hadn't been to Adelaide in years. The investigation had reached a dead end, and the inquest into the body found on Summerton Beach was closed. In it, Professor Cleland, the city coroner, explains... The report I have received indicates 1. The identity of the deceased is quite unknown. 2. That his death was not natural. 3. That it was probably caused by poison. 4. That it almost certainly was not accidental. The natural and simple explanation of the circumstances may be that the deceased died by his own act, but as we are dealing with circumstances which are not ordinary, it may be that the natural explanation is not the true explanation. Until the circumstances exclude the possibility that the deceased died through the act of someone other than himself, the possibility of murder must remain under consideration. Quote ends. Now, over the course of the next 70 years, thousands of people would tell his story, multiple investigations would once again look into his case, and the Somerton Man became famous for being one of Australia's most profound mysteries. Internet sleuths tried their best to find an answer in the Rabiat, experts were called in to decode the noted left, and hundreds of people would come forward claiming to know who the Somerton Man was. This is still, like, unsolved, right? Like, I'm, I, like I said, I'm familiar with it, and I think, or did they recently discover something for this one? I don't remember. Stay tuned. So, let's get into the two most well-known theories regarding the identity of the Somerton Man. The American Spy on the 12th of December 2015, that makes a lot of sense. The clothes removed, the American suit, randomly washing up somewhere, the access to poison or whatever, and suspicious circumstances. Feels very spy-like, doesn't it? On the 12th of December 2015, the body of a middle-aged Caucasian man, whoa, we are well ahead of time, suddenly, was found on the Saddleworth Moor in northwest England. We are... 70 years forward in time on the other side of the world. <laughs> what just happened? An autopsy revealed that he was between 65 and 75 years old and had died of strychnine poisoning. A surgical plate in his hip linked him to Pakistan, but his fingerprints didn't match anyone on record in Pakistan, the UK, or other countries. In January 2017, he was identified as being the 67-year-old David Litton, a bit of a loner who often traveled to Pakistan with his girlfriend and simply decided to end his life on the Saddleworth Moor that day. <laughs> Okay, what's the link here? On the 16th of September, 2001, the body of a man claiming to be Lars Stevig was found in a motel room in Amanda Park, Washington. He was found hanging in the wardrobe of the room, didn't have any luggage with him, and had left money and a note apologizing for the mess. All of the information he had left at the motel he was staying at was false, so the police were unable to positively identify him. 
Renowned genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick later used his DNA to locate his family, and they confirmed his identity, though they asked not to make it public. Do they have any a DNA from this dude, though? They just took the photos in plaster casts, because I guess people weren't thinking about that stuff back in the day. Can they get some? They could get some DNA if they didn't cremate him, right? They could dig up his body and get a get a sample. He'd be really gross by now, but DNA lasts some time. There'd be like some pool of something, not some bones to harvest. <laughs> In June 1999, the body of 41-year-old Ricky McCormick was found in a cornfield near West Alton, Missouri. He'd been murdered, and in his pockets the police found two pages filled with code. The codes were handed over to the FBI for analysis, and they even established a website for it where people could try and decipher it. But in 2012, Ricky's family found out about the code on a news broadcast about his case, and they told reporters that the mysterious code in Ricky's pockets didn't mean anything because Ricky was illiterate. According to his mother, he'd often write nonsense in notebooks and then proudly refer to it as his writing. And his cousin explained that Ricky couldn't spell anything, just scribble. But why am I telling you any of this? Yeah, it's a good question. My guess is because it's like, yeah, people go missing under mysterious circumstances all the time. Like, some are more mysterious than others, but it's usually just they just wanted to die or whatever. Because in neither of these cases did anyone for one moment think that they were spies. <laughs> Oh, I like the spy theory. The Cold War was still raging when the Isdor woman died, and one of the main theories surrounding her death is that she'd been a spy. And when the Summerton man died under similar mysterious circumstances, many people were still run returning from prisoners of war camp or had been in the army. So naturally, many people just assumed that he had to have been a spy, in particular, an American spy. After all, spy movies like Ministry of Fear, Notorious, Foreign Correspondent, Cloak and Dagger, and Backgrounds of Danger had all implied that there were spies everywhere. P.S. I have no idea what any of these movies are about. I just googled spy movies from the 1940s. <laughs> well done. Well done. I was like, wow, Emma, you've got like a deep knowledge of 1940s film. No, no, no. Just the power of Google. There were multiple reasons why people thought that the Summerton man had been an American. For one, a local tailor named Hugh Poser told the police that the suit the Summerton man had been wearing was mass-manufactured in the US since the stitches had been feathered, which was apparently a trademark of certain brands of industrial sewing machines that were used in the US. Secondly, the pathologist had also jumped on the conspiracy wagon and had noted that the Summerton man had combed his hair from front to back, not with the usual side part that was in fashion in both the UK and Australia at the time. The Summerton man had two combs in his possession when he died, a plastic one and an aluminium one, that had been manufactured in the US. The juicy fruit bubblegum it carried had also been manufactured in the US, but by that logic, he had to be British as well, since the cigarettes and the matches that he carried were both imported from the UK. It's a long way. This is like back in the day, it's a long way to bring shit. Like he's wearing American suits, he's smoking UK cigarettes. Did Australia make nothing? Then, of course, there was the note written on the back of the Ruby Ass, which has become known as the Taman Shud Cipher. The police had sent copies of the note to naval intelligence for help in deciphering it, but they were unable to provide any answers. Amateur sleuths had tried deciphering it, but they also came back blank, and over the years, multiple blog posts, websites, reddits, and Reddit users have tried their best to come up with answers. Some think the phrase is a secret spy message, and that the Summerton Man's copy of the Rubart is the key to deciphering the code, but the book has allegedly gone missing. Others think that each letter represents a word, and that the letters are the key to remembering a certain phrase. And others think that it might be the Summerton Man's final goodbye. But there are some who believe that Nurse Jestin is key to solving the cipher, which brings us to the next theory. Okay then. The Army Nurse and the Soldier During the initial investigation, Detective Lionel Lean didn't reveal the names of some of the people involved in the case in order to protect their privacy. In particular, the real names of Ronald Francis, the man who'd found the copy of the Rubart in the back of his car, and Nurse Jestin, the nurse whose phone number had been written in the back of it. 
Instead, he used aliases for them in his reports, which made it almost impossible for his successors to locate them. In 1975, Detective Jerry Feltus was assigned to the case of the Somerton Man, and in his book, The Unknown Man, A Suspicious Death at Somerton Beach, he explains that the first step he took was to try and identify Justin, since her phone number was directly linked to both the Rubaiyat and the Somerton Man. He managed to find an old phone book from the late 1940s and paged through it until he came across the number that had been written on the back of the Rubaiyat. The number belonged to Jessica Joe Thompson. Nee Harkness had been born in 1921 in Marrickville, New South Wales, and Feltus managed to track her down. Back in 1948, she had been living with a married woman named George Thompson, who she'd marry in 1950s once his divorce was finalized and had a one-year-old boy named Robin. According to Feltus, she had been evasive and didn't want to talk about the Somerton man, and reiterated the fact that she didn't know who he was, bringing his investigation to an abrupt end. But Feltus didn't believe her, and neither did Paul Lawson, the taxidermist who made the cast of the Somerton man's face since he'd been there when she was questioned and felt certain that she'd recognized him. Her own daughter, Kate, didn't believe her either. In 2014, she'd tell the news program 60 Minutes that her mother had known who the Somerton man was. Quote, she told me that it was a mystery that was only known by an intelligence level higher than the police force. Ooh, that's pretty mysterious. Sounds very conspiratorial, doesn't it? Kate explains that her mother had been paranoid and secretive, and Kate was convinced that Joe Thompson had been a Russian spy. According to Kate, her mother had been teaching English to Russian immigrants, and, and she told Kate that she was surprised that she could still understand Russian. But when Kate asked her mother when she'd learned Russian, Joe changed the subject. In 2009, another man would come knocking at Joe Thompson's door. He was Professor Derek Abbott, and he'd become obsessed with the case of the Somerton Man. He'd learned everything he could about the case, and also came to believe that Joe Thompson was the key to solving the case. Only by the time that he'd managed to track her down, he'd learned that she passed away in 2005. Professor Abbott spoke to Kate Thompson, and she revealed that her mother had already been pregnant with her eldest son Robin when she met George Thompson, reportedly telling her daughter that she'd been lucky that George had agreed to marry her. Now, this led to Professor Abbott believing that Somerton Man and Joe Thompson had had an affair sometime before July 1947, more than a year before Somerton Man died. The two split up, and a pregnant Joe then met and moved in with George Thompson, giving birth to the Somerton Man's son, Robin. And there were a few hints that this is correct. The Somerton Man had a condition called hyperdontia, which means that he'd be born without his two lateral incisors, the teeth next to your front incisors. Oh, I don't have those. I mean, I do, just not anymore. Like, the ones I have in my mouth uh, baby ones, like the milk teeth because my ones were just like buried fully in my palate, like in the top of my mouth, just like jutting across and I had to have them surgically removed. And then they used like, um, not like dentures, what's it called? Like a, a crown or whatever to like make my baby teeth stronger and bigger so they look more normal and uh, would last longer, which is nice. But no, I don't have those. Fascinating tangents, Simon. Thank you. And before anyone points out that babies are born without teeth, they are actually born with all their teeth already embedded in their jawbone, which makes x-rays of baby skulls look particularly freaky. Yeah, they are super freaky because there's like the two layers of like teeth. You're like, oh, God. Anyway, Robin Thompson had also been born with hyperdontia, and because it's a genetic condition, Professor Abbott felt sure there was a chance they could be related. <laughs> he felt sure there was a chance. Yes, me too. I feel absolutely certain there's a chance. It's the, you know, sex panther. 90% of the time, it works every time. <laughs> Brian, I'm going to be honest with you. That smells like pure gasoline. They've done studies, you know. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Furthermore, Paul Lawson, creepily, had noted that Summerton Man's calf muscles had been well-developed. <laughs> He's like, oh, look at those sexy calves. And it was later suggested that he might have been a ballet dancer. 
And as fate would have it, Robin Thompson had been a ballet dancer with the Australian Ballet, so Professor Abbott had an anatomist from Adelaide University named Professor Massey Hanneberg look at photos of Robin and compare them with photos in the plaster cast of Summer to Man. According to Professor Hanneberg, Professor Abbott asked me to look at the teeth and the, cu- the ear of the Summerton man and compare to the same features of the person who is supposed to be his son. I found they are similar. Professor Hanneberg explains that the earlobes of both men were attached to the sides of their heads instead of drooping a little. And because both men had hyperdontia, Professor Hanneberg made the assumption that they were definitely related. To quote, The combination of two similarities doesn't happen that often, probably one in 10,000 times. Therefore, it is likely that Summerton Man and Robin Thompson are actually related. Yeah, this seems extremely likely. And it seems like, because she recognized him, right? When she went in, it was like, no, no, I don't recognize him. So it sounds like she she had a little bit of a fling with old Summerton. But by this reasoning, I could also be related to Summerton Man since my earlobes aren't droopy. What, is this the earlobe? Is this the earlobe? Mine's not that droopy. I guess it is a little bit droopy. Yeah, it droops a bit. So, Professor Henneberg's methods seem as about as scientific as phrenology, which is the study of the shape and size of human skull, which was thought to enable phrenologists to determine one's personality. Yeah, phrenology's nonsense, we know that. The only way to confirm that Robin Thompson was definitely related to the Summerton man was to compare their DNA. Professor Abbott managed to track Robin down, but when they tried to contact him, he was told that Robin had sadly passed away just two months earlier and this body had been cremated. Joe's younger daughter, Kate, couldn't help either since she was thought to be Robin's half-sister, so her DNA probably wouldn't be a match for the Summerton man's. Can't they get some of Robin's DNA from somewhere else? Like, does he have a toothbrush knocking around or something? Can you do it from that, or is that just like a CSI thing? Professor Abbott turned to some people and eventually found out that Robin Thompson had dated a woman named Roma Egan when he studied at the Australian Ballet School, and the pair had had a daughter named Rachel. Oh, well, there we go. There's his DNA preserved. Let's go track down Rachel and check it out. So Professor Abba reached out to Rachel in 2010 and told her about the Summerton Man. They met up for a dinner, and he asked if she would allow him to take a sample of her DNA and have an anatomist study her teeth to determine if she, too, had hyperdontia. She doesn't. However, there was another hiccup in their master plan. They didn't have a sample of the Summerton Man's DNA. So, multiple crests were lodged with the Attorney General asking for permission to exhume the body of the Summerton Man, and in 2013, Professor Abbott and Rachel Egan met with various news networks to tell the story of the Summerton Man and gain support for their cause. In 2017, they reported that they'd found hairs embedded in the plaster cast and sent them off to be mapped. They were only able to extract and map the mitochondrial DNA, meaning the female line's DNA, which, according to Professor Abbott, was only about 1% of what they needed. Then in October 2019, Attorney General Vicky Chapman approved their newest request and told reporters that, quote, this man could be someone's father, brother, or cousin. And those relatives and friends deserve answers. South Australia Police has since come to me with the funding and an application, and I have approved it. It means that finally, this case, which has been studied, investigated, and followed for more than 70 years, will be re-examined, and hopefully many questions surrounding his enigmatic life will be answered. But... Dr. Lindsay Wilson-Wild, the Director of Forensic Science of South Australia, warns that it was possible that they still wouldn't have answers since, quote, the chemicals used in the embalming process can significantly break down any DNA present. It really is an unknown. We don't know what the state of remains is going to be, or we don't know the level of degradation. The Summerton Man was exhumed on the 19th of May 2021, but Professor Abba wasn't allowed to extract a sample of the Summerton Man's DNA since the body was now in the custody of the South Australian Police Force, so Professor Abbott was forced to go back to the DNA sources that they did have and work from there. Wait, wasn't the whole point of digging him up so that they can take the DNA and the police are like, no, 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 we're looking after his body? His weird, many decades decomposed body. 
Professor Abbott enlisted the help of renowned genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick and her nonprofit, the DNA Doe Project, and together they retested the Summerton man's hair, and this time they got a viable sample. According to Colleen, it was in good shape to upload to those genealogy databases. It was compared to Rachel Egan's DNA, and it indicated that they weren't related, nullifying the theory that the Summerton man and Joe Thompson had had an affair. Okay, never mind. I thought that was a pretty good theory. In fact, the test confirmed that Robin Thompson had been the biological son of George Thompson, which seemed to indicate that Joe had actually been having an affair with George while he was still married. Awkward. Well, we could have speculated this, because did he get divorced and then they get married? Anyway. July 2022, Professor Abbott and Colleen Fitzpatrick reached out to the media, and on the 26th of that month, they announced that the Summerton Man finally had a name. Yeah, I thought there was some, I mean, a couple of years ago now, but like relatively recent update on this case. Occam's Razor Now that they had a full DNA profile, Professor Abbott and Colleen Fitzpatrick uploaded the Summerton Man's profile into GEDmatch, a genealogical research database that combines DNA profiles from sites like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and Family Tree DNA. And they found a match. His name was Jack Hargreaves, and he lived in Victoria, Australia. He'd already started working on his family tree, so Professor Abbott and Colleen jumped in and added onto it, trying to find out who the Summerton Man was. To quote, At one stage, we had as many as 4,000 people on the tree, so which one is it? So, they applied the process of elimination. They were looking for men who were born between 1898 and 1908. Then they looked for men who didn't have a confirmed date of death, and one man stood out. He was a Goldilocks. He was the right age, didn't have a confirmed date of death, and best of all, he was related to a man named Thomas G. Keene, a.k.a. T. Keene. According to Colleen, oh, T. Keene was in the, in the clothes, right? The name in the clothes. When I saw the name Keene, that's when my hair caught fire. That's when I knew we were on the offensive. We were going to get it, because that wasn't a coincidence. His name was Carl Webb. He'd been born in 1905 and his date of death was noted as being unknown. Professor Abbott managed to track down a living relative named Antero Bonifacio, who also lived in Victoria and gave him a call. Antero agreed to provide a sample of his DNA and the results confirmed that Antero and the Summerton man were related. They had their man. Quote, It turns out he wasn't a spy, he wasn't a ballet dancer, and all those crazy theories on the internet all came to nothing. Professor Abbott was able to locate more of Carl Webb's family and found that it had been known as Charles. He was born to Richard and Eliza Webb on the 16th of November 1905 in Footscray, Victoria, and grew up in Springvale. He was the youngest of six children, and his family owned a bakery. During the Great Depression, the bakery failed, and Charles trained to become an electrical instrument maker. He used to play club football, aka soccer, which explains why he had such defined calf muscles, and he often bet on horses, which might explain the cipher noted in the back of the Rebiad. He married a 21-year-old woman named Dorothy Robertson in 1941. Dorothy worked as a pharmacist and chiropodist, aka a foot-and-hand doctor, and they moved to South Yar in Melbourne, where they rented a flat. According to Dorothy, he loved poetry and wrote several poems of his own, quote, most of them on the subject of death, which he claims to be his greatest desire. <laughs> Dude, you gotta see someone. It's like, you're just writing poems, but it's like, I just cannot wait for the warm embrace of death. <laughs> Their marriage wasn't a happy one. Charles Webb was often depressed, didn't have any friends, and used to abuse Dorothy. In March 1946, she came home one night and noticed that the house reeked of ether. I found him lying in a wet bed, gazing into space. He could hardly speak and was rambling. Dorothy nursed him back to health, but once he was back on his feet, quote, he told me I was a fool to help him get better. From then on, he became more violent. 
Dorothy left Charles in September 1946, good, and moved out of the flat in 1947. In 1948, Dorothy was living in Butte, which was an hour and a half's drive north of Adelaide. Charles's older sister, Frida, was married to a man named Thomas Keene, and it's entirely possible that he stayed with them for a while before moving on, explaining why he had second-hand clothes that had been labeled as belonging to T. Keene in his possession. Dorothy applied for divorce in 1951, explaining their history and her reasons for seeking divorce in detail as a part of the application, and placed a notice in the Age newspaper that read, To Carl Webb, formerly of Bromby Street, South Yarra, but now of parts unknown, take notice that your wife, Dorothy Jean Webb, has instituted divorce proceeding against you on the grounds of desertion. And unless you enter an appearance on or before the 29th day of October 1951, the case may proceed in your absence. When he didn't show up, Dorothy was granted a divorce, and Charles Webb seemingly disappeared off the face of the earth. None of his remaining family members had ever heard of an Uncle Charles before, or had even been aware that one of their family members had gone missing. According to Antero, why didn't any of the siblings try and find out where he went? Didn't they know he'd gone to Adelaide and never came back? Or did he just go off and no one knew where he was? It sounds like he's just like was a bit of a loner, didn't really have any friends, no one really cared. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh yeah, where's Uncle John? Oh, he just... He's just disappeared. Ah, oh, okay. I mean, he was not really here in the first place, was he? <laughs> what was his name? Not John. Charles. Now that we have all the puzzle pieces, Professor Abbott doesn't think Charles Webb had intended to kill himself. He theorizes that Charles had somehow found out that his wife was living in South Australia and had traveled the 700 kilometers from Melbourne to Adelaide to look for her. I agree. I think that Charles then bought a ticket to Henley Beach, another suburb in Adelaide, checked his luggage, and then went looking for Dorothy at her last known address, the home of Joe Thompson. He hadn't asked for Joe specifically, but had instead asked if a nurse, or a pharmacist, or a chiropodist lived there. The fact that Joe had been an army nurse is pure coincidence. He must have felt disheartened when no one knew what had become of Dorothy, resulting in him reaching a dead end. I think that after he left Joe's house, he went to a bar where he proceeded to feel sorry for himself. He sat there all day and got so wasted that he was kicked out of the bar, leaving his wallet, his hat, and his book behind to be stolen by somebody else. He then stumbled onto the beach, finally collapsed next to a wall, and just sat there, too drunk to even light a cigarette. Based on his autopsy results, it's entirely possible that Charles had already been suffering from acute hemorrhagic erosive, eros, erosive gastropathy Jesus, or stomach ulcers. Well, that's easier to say, isn't it? Which could be caused by heavy drinking. According to the Cleveland Clinic, it would have meant that his stomach lining had already been damaged and he would have become irritated from the alcohol, resulting in blood mixing in with his stomach contents. Oof, that's not nice. I think he'd drunk so much that night that his already damaged liver had trouble processing the amount of alcohol he'd consumed, and he started suffering from alcohol poisoning. His breathing would have slowed, and as the night wore on, his body temperature would have plummeted as he'd slowly lost consciousness. Eventually, he passed out, fell into a coma, and died when his heart finally gave in. In his autopsy report, multiple experts noted that he simply might have had gastritis and inflamed stomach lining at the time of death, but since the coroner insisted that he had to have been poisoned, most of their efforts went into identifying this deadly unknown poison. If his death had been noted as being the result of natural causes back in 1948, Carl Webb would have been lost to history and would have remained buried in an unmarked grave. Instead, through over 70 years of hard work, a sad and lonely man had his name and his family restored to him. As Rachel Egan explains, it's really heartwarming to learn that the family that may not have missed him when he went missing and when he died are now reclaiming him. And so ends the mystery of the Summerton Man. According to Professor Abbott, at least, 
As I'm writing this, the South Australian police hasn't released a report on their findings regarding the Somerton man's DNA, and they have explained that the police, proce- the police procedure says that they need to verify the DNA does indeed match the DNA of Carl Webb before they can confirm the identity. And since they don't have a confirmed sample of Carl Webb's DNA, it's going to be particularly difficult to prove, leaving the case of the Somerton man officially unsolved, but definitely proved because the DNA thing, boom, we know it was. And there's all these things like, if this was not solved, you'd be like, what does the cipher mean? What is this code? Who is Taman Should? Who is this, like, random name in the in the clothes? He's a spy. And it's like, no, 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 none of that. He just, like, it's just a bunch of stuff that came together, and that's it. Boom. Done. Mystery solved. Thanks for being here. <laughs> 